start a new series. I've been telling you about it for a few months. Book of Nehemiah. He was a great leader, one of the greatest leaders in the, uh, of the nation of Israel. I uh, came across a story of a leader. By the way, this is not what Nehemiah was like, okay, but I'll give you the opposite. During the French Revolution, a man was seen running down the street after a mob, moving quickly into danger. Stop! Stop! Someone cried out. Don't follow that mob. As the man continued to run, he called back, I have to follow them. I'm their leader. (laughs) Sometimes people just run out ahead and really don't care about a leader. But in this scenario, they did follow the leader. And great things happened to the nation of Israel. The rebuilding of the wall. And By the way, today we're, we're going to try to do something I've never done before. And that is review six chapters. All in one 40 minute, 45 minute time frame. We're going to try to primarily look at Nehemiah chapters 1 through 6. Touch on 13 not even look at 7 through 12. But the point is, we're going to try to... And we're going to do that not to study the book, but to see the person of the book. Okay? I just want to give you a snapshot, a glimpse of the, of the man of God named Nehemiah. Now, before we even do that, though, we're going to read the first three verses of chapter 1. Okay? So you know that we're going to read the first three verses, then we're just going to really try to get a, an aerial view. Okay? Of Nehemiah chapters 1 through 6. But we're going to start with the first three verses. I'm going to read you a, a summary of what the book is about. And then we'll, we'll delve into the man. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev. In the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital. By the way, let me just stop here. Because you're saying, Nehemiah. Where's Nehemiah. If you take your book, it's probably about a a third to two-fifths. If you've gone to Psalms and Proverbs, you're too far, you've got to back up. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs. Okay, now, I I need to give you some time. I got to thinking about it. I need to give you some time. Or, go to the beginning of your book. It says Table of Contents, and I'll tell you. (laughs) Page 659 in what, the MacArthur Study Bible? Okay. But you may not have a MacArthur. How many of you have a David Jeremiah study Bible? Uh, one, my, one, two people over here. Okay, yeah, that's a good one too. And the Ryrie study Bible, and we won't get there. Okay, all those are good Bibles. But anyways, Nehemiah. Hopefully you're there now. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the 20th year as I was in Susa, I'm just picking up in the, the, the first verse, uh, the capital, that Hanai, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. Now, he's in Susa. By the way, Susa is hundreds of miles, probably about 600 miles from Jerusalem, going east past Babylon uh, into where the Euphrates, okay, on on the eastern side of the Euphrates. So he's hundreds of miles away. These people come, traveling through, one of which is his brother, and he's asking about Jerusalem. See, his heart is for Jerusalem. And the people, the exile, how are they doing? Because remember back in the book of Daniel, just at the end of the book of Daniel, after 70 years of captivity, the people released from the Babylonian captivity, which is called the Babylonian captivity, and some exiles went back 
to Jerusalem. Actually, three waves of them. This would be the third. So he's asking how the exile is doing concerning and also the city of, of Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant, again, the exiles went back, there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, you know what that means? They're unprotected. They have enemies around. This small group of uh, people that went back as exiles, they're there, but the walls are broken down. The gates are on fire. I mean, the, the gates have been broken down and burned. There's no protection. And, and basically what happens is his heart breaks. His heart breaks at that point. Now, again, let me give you um, James Boyce in, in his wonderful commentary on uh, Nehemiah. He, he writes this as uh, kind of a, a synopsis. I think it's worth reading. Because, again, what's going to be put on Nehemiah's heart is going back and rebuilding the walls. This is what he wrote. What a task it was. Nehemiah went to the ancient Jew, uh, Jew, uh, Jewish capital of Jerusalem from the Persian capital of Susa in 445 B.C., in order to rebuild the city. It had been destroyed 141 years before in 586. You remember that date because when we studied Daniel, that was a key date. That was when Nebuchadnezzar on the third wave totally destroyed Jerusalem because Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had attacked Judah and carried off most of its inhabitants. Jerusalem had been burned. The great stones that made up one to one and a half to two and a half miles of the city wall of the city had been dislodged and tumbled into the steep valleys that surrounded it on all sides. Nothing of any value had been left. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar even took all the gold, the silver, anything of value, including the people he took, uh, he, he took uh, for himself to Babylon. As the decades slipped by, now again, 141 years earlier when this happened, as the decades slipped by, grass and trees had grown up in the deserted streets and pathways, and refuse had covered the masses of the overthrown stones. I mean, can you picture it? Just beautiful Jerusalem, decimated. Moreover, the only people who were available to do the demanding work of reconstruction were the exiles who had begun to return to Jerusalem nearly uh, a century earlier. They had tried to build the wall then and on several occasions later on, but they had failed each time and were thoroughly discouraged. Have you ever attempted a project and you started and you failed and you started and you failed and you started and you failed and you get, you're beginning to think, you know what, this is not possible. Well, again, over a hundred year period, they had tried to rebuild and they kept failing. A difficult task? No, no more like impossible. But Nehemiah so planned the work and so motivated the frustrated and disheartened uh, heartened, um, refugees that the task was completed in spite of fierce and mounting opposition in just 52 days. See, this man was just a tremendous leader. In fact, I, as I've been studying this for the last few months, I mean, this is the classic book on leadership. And, and, and by the way, I believe that this is a classic book. This is the book we need to study on leadership as well. Um, we're getting older. New generations need to come up. We need to know how God wants us to lead his people. And this gives us the answer. Now again, if you just look at the book, I, I want to kind of preview it, just <clears throat> very quickly overview. Chapter 1, he finds out about the problem. 
By the way, I'm using the uh, uh, ESV <laughs> um, and the New King James. I, I've decided I, I'm moving to a new study Bible, and this is my first uh, attempt at uh, uh, preaching from a different type of text. I say that because sometimes I, I knew the verse, but I knew the verse in the New King James. Uh, but at least for this series, we're going to use the uh, ESV and the New King James because I keep going back to that. Um, but chapter 1 is basically him finding out about the problem, verses 1 to 3, which we just read. Then he spends a bunch of time praying and mourning. And the Lord is, is cementing it in his heart. That's, that's verses 4 to the end of the chapter. Chapter 2 is when he approaches the king. He's the cupbearer. And we'll, by the way, all these concepts will be uh, thoroughly explained as we go through the text. But only know this, that the cupbearer had a very critical point uh, a, a, a job before the king because it was his job to make sure that anything the king got, the drink and the food, wasn't poisoned. So he had a high position in Susa. But he approaches the king in chapter 2, asks the request to go back, and the king says yes. And then in the last part of chapter 2, it's Nehemiah in Jerusalem, starting in verse 9, and, and making his plan. Going around the wall, determining the direction he needs to go, and then sitting down and telling the people of his vision. Chapter 3 is actually the building of the wall. When I say building, they only got up a part of the way. In fact, it isn't until chapter 4 we find out that they only got up half of the way. So when they say build the wall, they don't mean they get it the whole you know, 12, 15 feet. They would go up 7 feet, get all that done, and then keep building. See, because you want to get protection immediately. So that's chapter 3. Then, then chapter 4, opposition. You probably remember these people just from previous studies, Sanballat and Tobiah. And other people are added on. But the bottom line is in chapter 4 you have opposition from without. In chapter 5 you have opposition from within. <coughs> from their own Jewish brothers, the rich were taking advantage of the poor. And then chapter 6 is more opposition by the same people that have now gotten a bigger cohort and then in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Now when the wall had been built, 52 days, when the wall had been built. And really from chapter 7 to chapter 12, it's the uh, revival of the people. So if you think of it this way, if you just want to break down the, the book, it's this. The rebuilding of the wall, verse, chapters 1 through 6, the rebuilding of the walls. And then chapter 7 through 12, the revival of the people. They had a revival. They had a revival that it was is one of the greatest revivals of, uh, of the Old Testament. Which I think is very uh, good for us to think about because you can build buildings, but unless our hearts are with God, it means nothing. See, they had finished the wall in a spectacular amount of time, 52 days, but their hearts weren't right yet. There was things that needed to happen in their lives so that they as a people would walk with God because that's what it's all about. And then chapter 13 is Nehemiah returning. See, he, after he got his, uh, uh, the wall done and he set it up, he stayed there for 12 years in Jerusalem. Then he went back, served the king, and then in chapter 13 he comes back to Jerusalem, catch this, only to find that some of the old problems had reappeared. Which tells me this lesson, people need leaders. People need leaders. We're all followers to some extent. People need leaders. That's the glimpse of the book. Now let's go back to chapter 1. Because again, we want to get a glimpse of the guy. Because he's such a tremendous 
uh, example to us in so many different ways. I'm going to draw just uh, six characteristics. I think I had six. Uh, Six characteristics of this man. Very, very convicting. The first one is this. He was a man of prayer. He was a man of prayer. If you go to verse 4, after hearing about everything that had happened, you know, and he gets the report, you know, as far as Jerusalem. Now again, verses 1 to 3, he's in Susa. He's hundreds of miles away. But when he gets the report, look at what it says in verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 4. By the way, today I'm going to have to do a lot of chapter 2, verse 2. Chapter 3, you know, because we're moving and we're back and forth. And I I almost hesitated to do it this way. But I'm going to try to show you his life in six chapters, just kind of popping back and forth. But in verse 4, it says this, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept. By the way, that shows character right there. Empathy. He hurt. Like Romans says, rejoice with those who rejoice and what? Weep with those who? Sometimes we don't weep. I was at a funeral yesterday. And you you have to ask yourself, am I really hurting like Rich was hurting? Am I hurting like Doug was hurting? Because of the loss of his wife and her and his mother. Um, so again, he, he wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and what? Praying before God. Before the God of heaven. And I said, oh, Lord God of heaven, and, and, and we won't break this down now because we're gonna, well, we'll get to that next week. But he prayed. He prayed. By the way, the book of Nehemiah records 11 times that this man prayed. In this very short, you know, it's only 13 chapters, 11 times that he's calling out to God. In fact, if you go to chapter 13, in the last verse, he prays. <coughs> Remember me, O oh my God, for good. <laughs> and in between those, there's nine other times. He starts out in, in right in verse 4, you see him praying. And he's praying in chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 4, da 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 da. And in chapter 13, you see him praying four times, and he's a man of prayer. He's, and he's praying for all different types of things. Now, here, this is formal prayer. He heard of a need, and he, and he started praying. What's interesting is, from the time that he heard of it, which was the month Chislav, which we just, that's about November sometime between November and December. By the way, Jewish calendar different than ours, but in the November, December time frame. Until the time that he actually approaches the king is March, April. This, this is what I'm trying to say. He was in prayer for this between three and four months. It hit him so hard. And he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. Are you faithful in your prayers? I'll give you an example. Some of you, hopefully, signed up to pray for missionaries back in October. Remember that? Are you still disciplined in praying for them? It's easy to forget, isn't it? It's easy to get off the path. If you committed to that, in fact, if you, if you committed and you haven't, you need to repent because you made a promise that you would be praying for them and then just start praying. This man was, this man was faithful and by the way, he was praying about something that was a monumental task. I like what Philip Brooks says. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. That's good. One mark of a true spiritual leader is their honest acknowledgement of their own inadequacy and their humble trust in the power of God. That, that's Nehemiah. 
It had been attempted. It had been attempted. I'm sure when he started praying, he wasn't even necessarily thinking that he was the man that was going to lead. But he started praying, and then God put the burden on his heart. He believed what Jesus told his disciples in John 15. For without me, what? You can do nothing. So he was beseeching the Lord, beseeching the Lord. Now, he prayed for a number of months. Look at chapter 2. I'll show you another example of him praying. He gets to before the king, verse 4, then the king said to me, now he's serving the king like he would do every, every night, every day. I mean, he was with the king. He was one of the most powerful people in Susa. And he's there, he's serving. By the way, most of us would want to have this scenario happen after the next week. Got something in my heart? Got to get going. No, he just, as it were, puts it in the crock pot. Let's it simmer. Keep praying. Waiting for that moment. And the king saw that there was sadness in his heart, verse 2, and Nehemiah was very much afraid. So you don't go into a king's presence with sadness in your heart because that might mean like something's going to happen to the king. So he has a little conversation with Nehemiah. But then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I'm only saying this, like I said, we'll break it apart later. But the point was, he had been in such uh, uh, formal prayer. uh, As one author said, he said, this is like a telegraph prayer. You ever have telegraph prayers? By the way, if you're in fellowship with God and you're walking with Jesus, you can throw up telegraph prayers. Lord, just, you know. Unfortunately, some... Times Christians walk and they're out of fellowship and there's known sin in their life and they haven't repented and 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 they they feel like this. I've had people say, I don't even know if God wants to hear or I, I don't want to approach him. What do you mean? He's your source, he's your life source. So he throws up as it were a telegraph prayer. So I prayed to the God of heaven, you know, I'm sure, Lord, just help me to say the right thing. Help me to ask the right thing. You know, Peter was like that. Out of the boat, started walking, began to sing. What did he, did he have a long prayer? Lord, save me! And I'm sure he had an emphasis on that. Right? Martin Luther said this, To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Prayer is, is like it's, it's spiritual breath. And I trust that as you're growing in the Lord, you're finding that. Oh, you need formal times where perhaps you're even kneeling before God. Like we find David three to- or, uh, uh, Daniel three times a day. You need formal times. But then it's just that, you know, pray without ceasing. So that's before the king. That's the second time we see it. How about the third time? Uh, chapter 4. Before opposition. Uh, by the way, after chapter 3, half of the wall is be, has, has already been built up, or it's, you're going to find out in a moment that the half of the wall was built up. And now, anytime you're doing something for the Lord, understand that there's going to be opposition. And we have these opposers, Sanballat and Tobiah. And what does he look at in verse 4? Hear, O, hear, o our, our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts. He's talking about the enemy on their heads and give them up to, the, to be plundered. Uh, imprecatory prayer. <laughs> you know, sometimes we think we have to be nice to everybody. Uh, you know, he shows great character because he says, you know what? The evil that they're doing to your people, let that evil be turned back on them. 
So he, he prayed in verse 4. And let me just read out the rest of the prayer. On their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Verse 5, do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from their sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Some would say, well, that's him being fleshly. No, no, that's him protecting God and his name and his people. By the way, with Nehemiah, I don't see, I don't see any word where it, it's, we see him as sinning. I'm not saying he hasn't because we find him even confessing his own sins among the, with the people in, in, uh, in uh, chapter uh, 2. But the point is this, like Daniel, you don't see his imperfections. I know he had them, but what I'm saying is the Bible presents Daniel as being a man of God. He presents Joseph of the Old Testament, man of God. Nehemiah, same thing. You don't see the character flaws like you would see in uh, David. You know, uh, you just see him passionate for God. This needs to happen. Look at verse 6. So we built the wall. See, there was opposition. He prayed. What happened next? So we continued to build the wall. Didn't stop him. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. More opposition in chapter 4, verse 7. In fact, now we find there's other, not only uh, Sanballat and Tobiah, but also the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites, and heard that we were repairing the walls, and it was going forward, and that the uh, breaches were uh, beginning to be closed, and they were very angry. Now, I want you to get that. The enemies of God hate when God's work is being done. Whether it's the Jerusalem walls, or work in your own life. <laughs> Sometimes we back off of doing what God wants us to do because someone uh, created opposition to it. Wait a second here. I'm not saying that someone is from Satan, but I will say this. A lot of people that are trying to stop God were what? Are from Satan, right? World, the flesh, and the devil. That does not mean that anybody that opposes what I'm going to do, oh, you're from Satan. No, I'm not saying that at all. In fact, I, I believe like, uh, uh, I believe this. When it comes to opposition, I've got to treat it like chicken. You eat the meat and throw away the bones. And if you come with me with criticism, I'm going to try to pick, it, pick out of that. Man, I, I bet you there's a little piece of truth I should think about. But maybe the bones are this much and the chicken is this much. And I would hope you would do the same thing. Now, sometimes some of you come to me, and you know what? What you're telling me is absolutely right on, and it's all meat. But even if it's an enemy, I can learn something from that person. Even if it's nothing more than be patient. <laughs> but anyways, he's patient. <laughs> but again, verse 9, it says he prayed to, and we prayed to our God. Notice the we in verse 9. Chapter 4, verse 9. We prayed to our God. In other words, he had a prayer meeting. It wasn't just him. That's dependence on God. But look at this. And set a guard as protection against them day and night. See, they wanted to destroy the building of the wall. So he said, we prayed, we prayed together, but then we set a guard. A, a really beautiful, uh, you know, dependence on God and human responsibility. You pray and then you work. And that's how it is in our own lives. And then there's a time of sacrifice. Uh, you can just write this down. Chapter 5 is where he talks about how 
he gave to the people. He wanted to make sure that they knew that he was sacrificial as well. We'll see that in a moment. You don't have to turn there. But at the end of saying all that he had done for the people of God, he said, oh my God, all that I have done for this people, excuse me, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. So he prays a fifth time. More opposition in chapter uh, 6, verse 9. He prays a sixth time. And in chapter 6, he prays again, My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat according to their works. <laughs> That's 6, verse uh, 10. Uh, 13 and 14, actually. And then in chapter 6, verse 15, it says, And the wall was finished. Uh, there's a lull. The, people are, uh, the revival happens in chapter 7 through 12. And in chapter 13, if you want to just turn there quickly, he comes back to a bunch of problems. A bunch of problems happened when he was away. Um, verse 4. Uh, well, just that whole first part was they weren't paying the priests, the Levites, keeping it for themselves. And then the other thing that was happening in verse 15, they weren't keeping the Sabbath, letting people come in, you know, buy and sell on the Sabbath days. And then verse 23, they were marrying foreign women and allowing their sons, I mean, their daughters to marry foreign men. And four times he prays. And, and what you really are struck with is this. He comes to a difficult situation and to get strength and courage, he prays and then acts. And you see him acting. Let me just give you the, the different verses. In verse 14, it says, Remember me, O my God. And verse 22, he says the same thing. Verse 29 and verse 31. Remember me. Remember me. Remember them. Remember me. Lord, this is what he's saying. I need your help. If you're not, if, if you're not helping me, I cannot do this. I, I'm, I took a lot of time. I took 20 minutes just on this point because everything that we're going to talk about, these next five characteristics, are all based on the foundation of prayer. You see prayer in the beginning, the end. You see prayer throughout the entire uh, book of Nehemiah. He is continually going before. And, and actually, we haven't even looked at uh, Ezra's life, which is in chapter 7 through 12. <laughs> Actually, prayer is much more dominant. But in, 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 the, uh, in the life of Nehemiah, it's really dominant in chapters 1 through 6. So everything else that we're going to talk about now, the other five characteristics, are because he had the foundation of prayer. R.A. Torrey said this, Pray for great things, expect great things, work for great things, but above all, pray. So we've got to pray. Sometimes it's even hours. In fact, I don't think most people, most Christians, I don't think most Christians realize the hours and hours and hours of prayer that their leaders should be putting in and most likely are to lead them. It really should be. That's how it should be. You should look at me and say, you must be a man of prayer. I would hope I could say to you, yes. It's not just about I went to Bible college. So he's a man of prayer. Let's go to the second thing. He was a man of calling and purpose and vision. He was a man of calling, purpose, and vision. To this, we need to go back to chapter 1. And again, prayer being the, the foundation, 
Let him, as you pray, this is what happens in your life. God becomes the focus. God becomes your greatest audience. God is the one that you're seeking to please. See, when prayer is your your foundation now, and God is going to speak. Let me say quickly, this is how God speaks. Okay? I am not looking for an audible voice. Here, the Old Testament had not yet been completed. New Testament hadn't even been started. But still, we don't see audible voice, but we do see the moving of God in a life. And I do believe that still happens today, right? Does the word of God give me direction? Answers the the question of, Lord, what is your will for my life? Absolutely. And it should solidify to the point where it's a calling, a purpose, a vision. By the way, that's what keeps you focused. That's what's your foundation. That's what's your anchor. That's what keeps you persevering, really. I mean, think about uh, Moses. At first, he resisted the call of God. Who am I, right? And yet, all right, I'll send Aaron, you, Pharaoh. But it's because he knew God wanted him to do it. I mean, what kept Jeremiah? Let's just take another one. Persevering when the circumstances and even his people failed, right? People just rejected Jeremiah. Why? Because he knew he was called. He knew what he needed to do before God. And it's the same way with Nehemiah. I I liked what Warren Wearsby said of Nehemiah. Quote, Nehemiah started with the burden for Jerusalem, first part of chapter 1, but the burden was not the call. He wept over the miserable condition of the city, uh, verse 4, but his tears were not the call. It was as he prayed to God and sought divine help that he received a call to leave his relatively easy job and go to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls because he knew God had called him. And again, I don't want to use this call mystically. What I'm saying is this. He knew, the call is this. He knew what God wanted him to do. That's the call. What does God want you to do? <laughs> By the way, if you ever come to me and say, well, I have the gift of spiritual gift, a spiritual gift of teaching. <laughs> and then I ask you, well, are you teaching anywhere right now? No. <laughs> Wait a second. You've just told me what God has called you to do. Either that or you're lying or you're deceived, right? But you've just told me. Your spiritual gift is a good indicator. Oh, I've, I've been called to encourage. Well, when was the last time you encouraged? Oh, someone. Uh, six months ago. Whoop. Do you know what I'm saying? Sometimes we just kind of are, are uh, lackadaisical. Oh, this is what God has gifted me. Well, these are the people around me. And God is saying, no, no, that's, that's your calling. That's what I want you to do. That's what I want you to focus on. Well, with him, he knew what God wanted him to do, and he went full, full forward with it. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. Then I rose in the, in the night... And a few men with me. By the way, in chapter 2, verse 12, by this point, he's talked to the king, he's in Jerusalem, and he's going to be uh, looking at the walls. But I want you to notice what he says. I rose in the night, verse 12, and and I and a few men with me, I told no one what my God had put in my heart. Underline that. That's the calling right there. What God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Chapter 6, verse 3. Telling, I think it was his uh, the opposers. I think it was uh, uh, Tobiah and Sambalat. I believe it's that's who he's speaking to. But he said this: "I am doing a great work." That's not pride. That's saying this is what the Lord has called me to do. Chapter seven, verse five. Then my God put into my heart. He's defending why he's there. God put this into my heart. 
Okay. So again, what has God put into your heart? Chapter 2, verse 18. It says, and I told them, this is the, the Jews and that were there after he looked at the, the building or the wall. I told them of the hand of my God which had been good upon me and also of the king's word that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise and build. And, and then they set their hands to do the good work. Why did they set their hands to do the good work? Because he said, this is what God has put in my heart. This is what God is doing. I think sometimes because I'm cautious, and maybe sometimes even the elders, we're a little bit cautious. You know, we don't want to say this. Thus saith the Lord. I would not say that. Thus saith the Lord is in the Bible. But I think as a church, you know what's hit me? We need to know the direction we're going. And really be able to say, this is what Alfred Allman and this little area and this needs to accomplish. So that people can come around and say, okay, let's have a mind to work together. Um, not mystically. And by the way, anything that we do here should line up scripturally, completely scripturally. What has Jesus called us to do? Make disciples. All right. But the question is, how is that going to play out at Alfred Allman? All right. And then let's all get on board so that we're, we're uh, as it were, and I mean in a humbly sense, a, a force to be reckoned with, right? We're working together. So that's what we see. See, leadership involves vision, revision, and supervision. But as one man said, the greatest of these is vision. <laughs> you got to have vision. Where are you going? It's like that guy running behind the crowd. I'm their leader. No, you're not. How does it go? <coughs> he who is walking... He who is a leader that is walking on his own... Oh, forget it. <laughs> I guess the Lord doesn't want me to... Sh I'll share it next week. <laughs> the bottom line is this. is only taking a walk. I forget how to do it. Anyways, bottom line. He was a man of purpose. Leaders must see what others don't see, then challenge others to follow until they do see. And, and again, I... I'm really burdened. I mean, actually, I think why the Lord has really burdened me for this study is because um, we're all growing older, the younger generation. How are we moving forward? Are we really a body? Are we really a body that's united? Are we a body with strong leadership to say, you know, okay, I see where we're going. So he had a calling, a purpose, a vision. Number three, he was a man that, had, that planned and organized. He wasn't impulsive. By the way, there's nothing quicker that will destroy someone's leadership than just being impulsive, going over here and then going over there and never really know where the guy's going to land type of thing. Again, if you go back to chapter 1, he heard about the situation in verses 1 to 3. He started praying in verse 4. Chapter 2 is about three to four months later. It had, it had developed in his heart. He was planning, he was organizing, he was thinking it through, Lord, what part do I play? Lord, where do you want me to land? And then he approaches the king, and the king asks, verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4, what are you requesting? We read this, but let, let, me, let me break this down a little bit more. Chapter 2, verse 5, it says this, if it pleases the king, a very respectful, obviously he needed to be respectful because the king literally could kill him, <laughs> 
But the, the idea is, he's a man who's going to have authority, who is okay to be under authority. Sometimes you find men and women who have authority, but are unwilling to be under authority. But if it pleases the king, send me to Judah, to the city of my fathers. By the way, he doesn't even name the city. Your Bible probably does not have the word Jerusalem there. See, Jerusalem to those kings in that area was, was like, oh. Because it just had always had so many problems. It was the crossroads of the Mediterranean going to Egypt and to Asia. There was constant fighting. Jerusalem was constantly under siege, constantly having, you know, I'm not talking from Israel. They were just the, uh, the rebels. He doesn't even mention Jerusalem. He just says, to the city of my father's grave, that I might rebuild it. And I said to the king, now notice what he does. It shows that he has thought through this. If it pleases the king, now that's respect, that's submission, and he names it off. See, the king at a moment, of just you know, it was just going to be a normal uh, meal. But all of a sudden, he says, well, what do you request? And you can tell that this guy, Nehemiah, had it all planned out. If it, when he asks, I've got it all figured out. Okay? I'm going to tell him what we need. Okay? And that's what he does. Let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they might let me pass through you. See, otherwise they would just stop him. Where are you? Who are you? Well, I'm from Susa. Oh, you're not going through my land. I've got to have letters to get through. Verse 8. And a letter to Asaph, the, the keeper of the king's forest, that he might give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress. Now notice, the gates of the fortress of the temple, for the wall of the city, <laughs> and for the house that I shall occupy. <laughs> I mean, he is bold. If this is what God wants, this is what I need. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. All glory goes to God. It's God. But I will be bold if that's what God wants. Look at verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night. Now this is now he's, from verse 10 to 11, he went to Jerusalem. Okay, now he's in they don't tell us anything about his travels to Jerusalem, all those hundreds of miles. It took uh, uh, months to get there. But then he's in Jerusalem, and I was there three days. I arose in the night, I and a few men, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart. So he wasn't going to just spread it. Kept it silent. Verse 13, I went out by night. And what he did is he went around the entire uh, two to two and a half mile wall at night with just a couple other guys. He inspected the wall. Verse 16, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because I had not yet told them. And he names them, Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to work. I didn't tell anybody. I just knew that this is what God wanted. Verse 17, then I said to them, then he, then he gave me the plan. Then I said to him, again, what do you see here? You see a man who plans and organizes patiently carefully systematically he developed the plan that god had put in his heart and then he was able to verse 17 then i said to them by the way when you are praying and feel that god wants you to do something and has put something on your heart and has planned and organized you know what that really all ends up being because you're dealing with people and just your own it's risk there's a lot of risks there. You know, we, we rejoice in Nehemiah. Because, man, what a great man. But that was huge risk. That wall had been 
sought to be built for a number of times over 100 years, and, and now he's going to seek to be the man who leads it. There's a, there's a high potential to failure at that moment. I like what John Piper says. He said in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. He says this of risk. Risk is right. He defines risk as any action that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury, even if the loss is just your own personal as far as how people look at you. He continues by writing this, quote, Risk is woven into the very fabric of our finite lives. We cannot avoid risk even if we want to. Ignorance and uncertainty about tomorrow's activities can be shattered by a thousand unknowns, whether we stay at home under the covers or ride on the freeways. He goes on, one of my main aims of writing the book, he says, is this, to, quote, explode the myth of safety and to somehow deliver us from the enchantment of security. Because it's a mirage. It doesn't exist. Every direction you turn, there are unknowns and things beyond your control. Do you ever feel like that? You want to have everything settled? Don't get me out of my comfort zone. But life is risk. And he ends with this. The tragic hypocrisy is that the enchantment of security lets us take risks every day for ourselves. And this is the most important part of this whole quote. But paralyzes us from taking risks for Christ and others. Oh, we don't have to take risks, but if we're going to take it, I'll take it for myself. But then taking a risk for Christ and others? What do you mean? Let's go back to the spiritual gifts. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have truly put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a gift. You know, it might be teaching, it might be exhortation, it might be leadership, it might be comforting, it might be the gifts of help, it might be the gift of mercy. The point is this. You have been gifted supernaturally by the Holy Spirit to minister to the body of Christ. But you know what happens sometimes? Fear. Won't do it as good as, and maybe name a person. What if the Lord, as the word, doesn't come through and I fall flat on my face? And we back away from using what God has given to us for his body. The body suffers, but we do too. And sometimes it all revolves around this idea of fear because there's risk. It actually becomes an idol of our heart. There's a lot of other things. It's the risk of serving, the risk of uh, connecting, the risk of sharing, the risk of giving, you know, if I give, but what if I, I might need that nest egg? The risk of interaction with others. How about this one? The risk of witnessing. They might reject me. Huge, huge risk. Oh, I'm out of time. I wish I could stop the clock. Let me just give you a couple of other thoughts. He was a hardworking delegator. He was a hardworking delegator. In fact, we will stop with this one. Because they all kind of go together. He prayed, he had a vision, <coughs> he had a plan, he planned it out, he wasn't impulsive, but now we find him actually doing it. Verse 17 of chapter 2, Then I said to them, now again, by this point he's met the king, he's gone to Jerusalem, he's looked at the, uh, the walls, and verse 17, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. By the way, notice he uses the pronoun we. You want to get somebody to be a stakeholder in what we're going to be doing? Hey, we're all in this together, right? 
I, I look at Charlie. Charlie's the, the man that's ahead of our counseling program. But you know what I would say this? We need counseling in this area, right? We need counseling. Not you need counseling. We as a church need to have a ministry that is able to counsel people when they're in their deepest need. Not just counsel. Sometimes that, oh, I don't need counseling. I just need a little help. Well, okay, when you need help. But the point is, is we, we do it together. We're a church. We're a body. You see what he's doing? He's bringing them right in. Hey, listen, we, he doesn't put himself out here and yeah, you're, you're the problem. You know what? I need people to come alongside me and help me. And we all need that, right? Anyways, this is how he approaches them. You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may, not, may no longer suffer derision. Because you know what? I'm a Jew, you're a Jew. We're all suffering derision because of this. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me. There's a calling. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. He's a great leader. Peter Marshall said it this way. Give, give to us clear vision that we may know where to stand and what to stand for. Peter Marshall saying, this is what a leader needs to do. Give us a vision so we know where to stand and what to stand for. Because unless we stand for something, we, we shall fall for anything. Oh, that's true. We will, we will fall for everything and anything that's out there. We need, this is, the, this is what we need to do. This is the direction we need to go. So he's a hard-working delegator. You see him building the wall. By the way, he is right with them in chapter 3. When they're building, he's building. When the opposition comes, he even gets to a point, we'll look at next week, where he says, listen, uh, you with the bugle, I guess it was more like a horn, you stay right with me, and I'm going to be looking out. And when I see a problem, one of the opposition hitting the wall, I'm going to run to that wall, and I'm going to have you right beside me, and then you're going to blow. And when you blow that horn, everybody is going to descend on that point because we're going to defend this as a body. We're going to defend it as an army. And he was right with them. He didn't say this, you know, do as I say, not as I do. I will be over here in the temple, uh, in the high tower. Now you just take care of building this. He's right there in the trenches. Because leaders have to get their hands dirty. Charles Spurgeon said this to his students, his pastoral students, quote, Do not be afraid of hard work for Christ. A terrible reckoning awaits those who have an easy time in, this, in the ministry. But a great reward is, is in reserve for those who endure all things for the elect's sake. You will not regret your poverty when Christ cometh and calleth his own servant to himself. It will be a sweet thing to have died at your post, not turning aside for wealth or running from Dan to Bar Beersheba. What he's referring to is Dan was in the north, Beersheba in the south. In other words, just constantly running to some other better thing. No, you stand at your post to obtain a better, not going after a better salary, but stopping where your Lord bade you. That's where he told you to hold the fort. And I, I love that. There's no place in the Lord's service for lazy people who give advice while they watch other people do the work. And again, Nehemiah was not like that. This is what we're going to do. In fact, in chapter 7, I'll close with this. Chapter 7, verse 1, again, the wall was built. 
They're going into the revival time, chapter 7 through 12. But it says this, And the wall had been uh, built, and, and I had set the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers and Levites had been appointed. Okay, so everything was set. Notice what he says, verse 2. I gave my brother Hanai, and Hanaiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Pass the baton. He got his job done, got out of the way. It's not my little kingdom. I'm just doing this for God. This is what God told me to do. It so reminds me of 2 Timothy. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Looking for a faithful man. This is a faithful man. I'm going to hand over the governorship to him. What have we learned? He has a conversation. God lays it on his heart. He weeps. It breaks his heart to know that God's people were in danger and all that came along with that. He prays because he was a praying man. That's what we need to do. If you're not a praying person, if you're a Christian, you're not praying, you need to repent. God wants to direct you, but he directs you through his word and then how you interact with his word through prayer. Then God starts to put a a calling on his life, a vision, and it becomes solidified through a plan. And he gets to the place and he has the plan because he's taken time and now he passes it to other people and now it becomes not me, but we. And I will say this, we all need that, but there are some of you that are specifically called to help lead this church and and that's who I'm speaking to right now. (laughs) Get on your knees and if you believe, yes, God is calling me, then, then again, as we study Nehemiah, I think we're going to have, I trust that we're going to have more leaders come up now and say, you know what? Yes, elder, yes, deacon, yes, teacher, yes, uh, supervisor, you know, as far as overseeing. We need to be um, a body that's a body that's working together, that a group that is able to see their leaders and then follow. So again, I trust that you'll be praying for that because that is one of my, I'll, I'll use the word hopes that through this series, many will be uh, raised up to be leaders. Let's stand as we close. I want to worship the Lord um, with song at this time.